Chapter 10 of Mars is My Destination by Frank Belknap Long. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. Chapter 10 He's a big man, I heard a woman's voice say. It took every ounce of my strength to lift him, but he had to be moved to the edge of the bed, doctor. The sheets had to be changed. A whirling in my head, needles darting in and out. I had to strain my ears to catch what another voice was saying in reply. It was a man's voice, but gruff, deep-throated, and somehow less distinct than the first voice. Perhaps gruff voice was standing further from the bed, or possibly he didn't want me to hear what he was telling the nurse. She had to be a nurse, because gruff voice wasn't addressing her by name. He wasn't calling her Miss Hadley or Miss Betty Ann Simpson Crookshank. He was saying, nurse this and nurse that, and speaking with crisp authority, as if there was a gulf between a nurse and a doctor which even the kindliest, least hidebound of physicians had no right to ignore. I rather liked his voice, gruff as it was. He spoke with the air of a man who knew his business, with a kind of restrained sympathy, the no-nonsense approach. Too much calm self-assurance can be irritating, because it usually goes with the inflated egos of people who think very highly of themselves. But in a doctor, you don't object to that sort of thing so much. He's waking up, Gruff Voice was saying. Just let him rest and don't encourage him to talk. No more sedation. He won't need it. Did you take his temperature, nurse? Just ten minutes ago, doctor. It's on the chart. I always... Put it down immediately. Who do you think you're kidding, Susan, my love? Once in a while you put it off when the kind of emergency case makes you wish you had a dozen pairs of hands. You put it off for fifteen or twenty minutes when you've no reason to think some white-coated drum major is going to barge in unexpectedly just to lean on you. Did you ever know me to lean, Susan, heavily or otherwise? You're doing the best you can, and it's a very good best. I wish we had more bests like it. I do feel s sort of wobbly, Roger. I deserve to be leaned on, because once you start feeling that way, you're no longer at peak efficiency, and you become nervously over-scrupulous. That's both good and bad, if you know what I mean. What did you expect, Susan? I could have had a nurse in here to relieve you hours ago, if you hadn't been so stubborn. You've been worrying your cute blonde head off without stopping to rest for sixteen hours, and you never set eyes on the guy before this morning. What is there about some men? It was touch and go, Roger. You said yourself that a little of the poison got into his blood. You told me a tenth of a cc would have been fatal. That was when I first looked at the lab analysis and took the gloomiest possible view of his chances. I didn't even know you heard me. Damn it all, Susan. Can't a doctor think out loud without giving his most competent nurse a martyr complex? What is there about him? I'm asking you. If he wasn't married, I could perhaps understand it. I could at least make a stab at trying to figure it out. But you've seen his wife. A man with a wife as attractive as she is would have to be even more susceptible than I am to look twice at another woman. That's just another way of saying it couldn't happen. I've had two long talks with her, Roger. 
She loves him so much that if anything happened to him, I'm afraid to think what she might do. All alone on Mars, with no close relatives or friends to turn to for help and warmth and comfort. She'd need a lot of support, because there's nothing shallow about her. She's the intense type, very deep in her emotions. I'm that way myself. You don't have to tell me, I could hear him saying. You're the empathy plus type. It's what makes a good many otherwise sensible women embrace the toughest profession on the list. Hard-boiled, unemotional women make good nurses, too. But I prefer the kind of nurse you can't help being. Only, a little moderation even in people who go all out can be a saving grace. But don't you see, Roger? It means I can identify with her. I know exactly how terrible the uncertainty must be for her, because if I loved a man that much and lost him, I'd probably go right out and kill myself. If you want the full truth, there's probably a little of the male-female absurdity mixed up in it, too. It's an absurdity in a situation like this, where it makes no sense. But just the fact that he's a man and I'm a woman... Talk like that will get you nowhere, he said. I'm too sure of you. There was a rustling sound and a sudden gasp, and I was pretty sure I knew what it meant. He'd taken her into his arms and was kissing her. I don't know why I didn't open my eyes. I was fully awake now, aware of every movement in the room. But I just remained quiet and listened, grateful that the needles had stopped jabbing at my temples and my dizziness was practically gone. Sometimes when you awake suddenly from a deep sleep, your eyes feel glued shut, and it takes an effort just to open them. You let it ride for a moment while you pull yourself together, especially if it's a nightmare you've just awakened from. There's a kind of pleasure in it. He was talking again. I've yet to meet a woman who doesn't think that clinical self-analysis will keep a man guessing about her. But that kind of candor will get you nowhere with me, kiddo. I know you too well. Are you convinced? Yes, she said, with a meekness that surprised me. He didn't say anything for a moment, but I could hear him moving about in a metallic click, as if we were folding up his stethoscope or returning a hypodermic to its case. A sound like that is always a little unnerving, and an operating table and a long row of gleaming instruments flashed evanescently across my mind. I wondered how bad it was, and if Martian hospitals were well-equipped, and had just the right facilities to take care of an emergency case requiring major surgery. But he had said I was out of danger, hadn't he? That I didn't even need more sedation? Sure he had. I'd been stabbed with a poison dart, but that didn't mean I'd have to go on the operating table. They would never have let the dart stay inside me, if an operation had been needed, it would have been performed immediately. Perhaps it had. Well, to hell with it. I was out of danger now and beginning to mend, and that was the only thing that counted. It had been touch and go, she'd said. And Joan loved me so much that... Hold on tight to that, Ralphie boy. It's the best news you'll ever hear, even though you knew it all along, or sure of it on the day you married her. What they didn't know and would have to guess about was the feeling of oneness we had whenever we were together. I let that ride, too. 
sweet as it was to dwell upon, and thought about how mistaken I'd been about the doctor. He wasn't the kind of guy I'd thought him. The nurse-this-nurse-that talk had been either a performance put on for my benefit, just in case I was a little more than semi-conscious, or a routine, quickly dropped formality. The second supposition seemed the most likely, a kind of ritual they went through from habit, and because it's more ethical to keep a doctor-nurse relationship on a formal plane when the patient is under clinical scrutiny. After that, they could relax and be human. I had no complaint, because I liked both aspects of Gruff Voice's personality. That I liked the nurse goes without saying, not only because of what she'd said about Joan, but because of a certain something. All right, Gruff Voice had said that he was susceptible beyond the average, and so was I. A sweet, soft woman bending over you, denying herself sleep just to make sure you'll stay alive, doing her best to ease your pain, sort of does things to you. It had nothing to do with the way I felt about Joan. It wasn't actual disloyalty. Didn't come within a mile of disloyalty. It was just the man-woman absurdity she'd mentioned. Only, it wasn't an absurdity, and never had been. It may be a hard thing for a woman to understand sometimes, but it's never hard for a man to understand if he's honest with himself and knows just how powerful the mating impulse can be in human beings. Call it sex attraction if you want to, but when you've called it that, it's important to remember that the mating impulse is the basic anthropological prime mover. Sex is simply its modus operandi, on Earth and on Mars, whenever a normal man and a normal woman are in close proximity, even for ten or twelve seconds, the mating impulse starts unwinding. On another planet of another star, the modus operandi might not be sex as we know it, but something quite different. If you can imagine another way of choosing a mate, building a home, and filling it with healthy, happy children... It's a coiled spring trigger mechanism kind of impulse, and neither the man nor the woman have to be attracted to each other on the personality level, unless you want to be technical and regard the purely physical as an attribute of personality. They can be young or old, plain or good-looking. Some attraction will be present, even under the most adverse circumstances. But when the woman is young and beautiful and on a personality level warm and appealing, You'll be deceiving yourself if you think the impulse can be kept from arising just because you already have a mate you're desperately in love with. You can conquer the impulse if you try hard enough, and your love for someone else is strong enough. That's what is meant by loyalty. But you can't keep the impulse from arising, and it makes no sense at all to feel guilty about it. The human brain is a resourceful instrument and there are a dozen ways of keeping a tight grip on your nerves when you wake up on a hospital cot and hear unfamiliar voices talking about you. I chose the way that was most natural to me. I concentrated on the scientific construct I've just summarized, letting my mind glide over and play around with it for a minute or two, and telling myself that I must thank the nurse for all that she had done for me. When Gruff Voice left, there would be a glow, a brief moment of warmth between us that might have become a high-leaping flame 
If I hadn't been in love with Joan, and she hadn't been carrying a torch for a gruff voice, I wasn't even sure she was beautiful, but it seemed likely because you can tell a great deal about a woman just from the sound of her voice. Even if she bent over and kissed me, her eyes shining a little because she'd helped me outdistance death a yard from the finish line, and was feeling grateful and thrilled about it, well, that would have been all right, too. I didn't think Joan, or the man who had just taken her into his arms, would have held that kind of kiss against us. I had the feeling that Gruff Voice was a generous-minded, all-right guy, and if an operation had been necessary to save my life, he'd done his best to increase my chances with all of the surgical know-how at his command. Just that thought made me decide to open my eyes and try to raise myself a little, because he had a right to know how grateful I felt. He was just going through the door. I could see that he was tall, blonde, and rather sturdily built. But a wave of dizziness made me sink back against the pillows again before I could get a really good look at him. It's hard to tell what a man looks like anyway when he's facing away from you, and you can only see his disappearing shoulders and the back of his head. When I opened my eyes for the second time, a full minute later, the eyes that looked back at me were just as I'd pictured them, a deep, lustrous brown. Her face was very much as I'd pictured it, too, except that I had no way of knowing whether she was a blonde or a brunette. She looked a little like Joan. Her hair was done up in a different way, and her lips were a little fuller than Joan's, and her cheekbones not quite so prominent. Her nose, too, was a fraction of an inch shorter, but otherwise she could have passed for Joan's sister, not a twin sister, for the resemblance wasn't anything like that pronounced. But it was close to the family likeness you see quite often in portraits of two sisters when one is smiling and the other looks seriously troubled. It flashed across my mind that if they had been standing side by side, both wearing the same expression, the resemblance would have been considerably more striking. It shouldn't have surprised me too much, because of what she'd said to the doctor. Women who think and feel in much the same way are very likely to bear a family resemblance physically. It's the sort of thing which makes an anthropologist shake his head in vigorous denial. But facts are facts, and who was I to dispute them? Just lie quiet, she whispered, patting me on the shoulder. Dr. Crawford says you mustn't try to talk. You're going to be all right. I'm Miss Cherubin, your day nurse. She smiled, her eyes crinkling a little at the corners. You should have a night nurse, too. But I've been staying in her place. Cherubin. An angel? No, Cherubim was spelled with an M. And she wasn't that young, or quite as rosy-cheeked as cherubs are supposed to be. What made it really tragic was my inability to reach out and touch her or ask her a single question, because right at that moment another wave of dizziness swept over me, and I blacked out again. End of chapter 10